Tonight I want to talk about receiving the world. One of, one of the most difficult uh, qualities of mind for most meditators to own or to even admit is part of his or her consciousness, I think, is prejudice. I think most of us um, are rather liberal-minded and uh, want to think of ourselves as being very open and inclusive. And yet often the seeds of our opinions take root in such a way as they coalesce around a kind of, of, um, of expression to groups or to individuals or to populations, uh, and that is never checked out because it's a little bit too scary, one might say, to expose that and to admit that one has prejudice. And so it sort of it sits in there, seeds in us. And where the meditator, a person of growth, a person of awareness, recognizes that there's some way that he or she is holding a perspective to a population. And, we, and in that willingness to understand and to learn, says, well, what is this? Let me, let me bring this out and expose this to the actual population itself. And to be able to meet people and genuinely work on one's reactions as we meet people is a very healthy sign of growth. Prejudice is not a sign of not being open if it just doesn't sit there and see. I mean, as long as it sits there and sees, it's a sign of really being close. But if we bring it out and we really expose that and we, sh- and we work on it and we see that it's really based in ignorance, then all of this is very fruitful and useful. Now, as a case in point, um, as the director of a hospice program, hospice uh, generally uh, opens its doors to all categories and classes of people. I mean, what are you going to do? Say no to somebody who's dying because they're X, Y, and Z? So we take a a very um, liberal stance with us. And, you know, we serve all people, all beings everywhere. Well, a very fundamental Christian church uh, came to me as the director and asked us to serve their population of people with professional services. They were forming their own volunteer hospice and they wanted us to have bring the professional services in and they would be the volunteers. And so I went to the staff and I said, this is uh, the contract that people would like to make, um, thinking that everyone would be on board with that. And immediately, the staff closed down. Says, nope, send them to somebody, some other hospice program. <laughs> I said, <"Wh-> <laughs> why is that? They said, well, we know this church very well, which they did. And we don't want to, every time we walk in the house, uh, they'll try to convert us. I said, so? You mean you're going to, you're not going to serve the dying who are trying to convert you, but you'll serve the dying who aren't. 
Is that how we're going to work this thing? <laughs> you don't understand, Rodney. You've never been in that house, blah, 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 about that. I said, well, I'll listen to your complaints, but we're going to serve them. Because we're not, we're going to work, we'll work on ourselves to open and expose this prejudice that we have, which was an obvious prejudice. Then I left the position. I'm not really sure what happened. To <laughs> I didn't bail out. <laughs> but we, not to deny the prejudice, if we have feelings... Those feelings are based in ignorance. I, I turn towards those feelings, knowing full well that they aren't true. Let me bring them out. Let me look at them. Let me expose them. Let me see where the untruth in those. Where am I holding some belief that is untruth, that needs to be exposed in air, in awareness, so that I can question this untruth? To pretend it's not there doesn't serve us. And I had a very... Um, sharp and poignant example of this uh, this year no last year I, I was invited to Oregon State Penitentiary and uh, um, there is a group of hospice inmates who were serving dying inmates and they found that these people these inmates who were serving the dying were really changing their character they were really they uh, became um, uh, often it's very spiritual and uh, were, became model prisoners and real rehabilitation was being seen there. So they invited me in to uh, do a workshop with them. So I, I flew to Portland and the woman who picked me up in Portland we were, as we were driving to Eugene, which is or Salem, which is where this prison was, um, we, uh, we drive and we get to the Salem, we get to Salem. We start to get out of the car and she looks at my pants. I'm wearing blue jeans. She says, oh, you can't wear blue jeans in the prison. And I said, uh, I said, well, I'm here only for a day. I didn't bring anything else. She says, well, the, the inmates wear blue jeans, and they won't allow visitors in with the same dress as the inmates. She says, but never mind. They'll, they'll get you something to wear. So come on in. So I walk in, and they give me a pair of sweatpants. The problem with his sweatpants is they come up to mid-calf. <laughs> and then they let me into the prison at the same time as the prisoners are coming from the activity yard into this bay area where this is a holding. They don't open any of the doors until all the prisoners get in. Then they open all the doors and all the prisoners go in. So they have me in this bay area. All the doors are shut and locked. And all these prisoners come in, hundreds of them. And they're all cat whistling. And <laughs> I, I've never been, this was the first time I'd ever been in a prison. So I'm standing there. And, and so I get through the doors and we go up and we're, and we're sitting. Um, and there are about 20 chairs in a circle. And the chaplain is sitting there. And. I'm sitting there and I say, um, uh, Chaplain, what, uh, wh what would these people have done? You know, what would these people have done <laughs> that I'm going to talk to? And, they, and she said, oh, about 18 of the 20 would have been murderers. <laughs> and, uh, like I gulped. You know, I said, 
I, I never, uh, I, don't, I don't think I've ever met a murderer. <laughs> and I just, I saw a kind of prejudice come out, a, a sort of something I'd really hadn't uh, expected. And I thought, oh, you know, I don't know what to say to prisoners. I don't know what to say to a human being, but are they, you know, it's like. And so we were sitting around talking and suddenly, you know, you go back. I went back and forth just to be on. I went back and forth with this. Oh, I, and suddenly, uh, as they started talking about their hospice stories, uh, I could meet their humanity through the hospice. It would have been very difficult uh, with another subject, but through the hospice. And then I could relax and I could I could really work with my prejudice about that. It was a very important moment for me to. Something that I hadn't really realized was uh, harbored in terms of that particular category of people. But let me tell you a story of one of the inmates' stories of their own prejudice. This was a big, huge man. And as I was was talking to the different prisoners about their hospice, uh, uh, this man told me the following story. Now, he was huge. He was well over 300 pounds. Tattoos, there wasn't a... Tattoos everywhere, ponytail, and just a huge man. And he said that uh, why he had gone into prison was for a hate crime. He had killed a gay man and uh, murdered him. And then he started telling me about his first hospice patient who happened to be a gay man. So, he goes to the gay man and he's alone and the gay man is dying and actively dying so he's in and out of consciousness and the gay man reaches up and says would you hold my hand and the prisoner said at the time that his hand touched the gay man's hand he started to sob this huge 300 pound man and as he's telling his stories tears are just streaming down his face and he said he never had such a healing experience. Let us be honest with what's inside of ourselves. And let us be willing to expose that. To come out. It does serves no one. It does not serve humanity to pretend that we are open. When we are not. Honesty serves humanity, and honesty serves ourselves. And so often we think of ourselves as being open and want and hold the image in in almost an idealistic way of being open, when really we just haven't had our buttons pushed yet. We're very argumentative inside. There's a lot of judgments going on. And if we're very honest with those, those judgments hold a kind of opinionation, a kind of conclusion about life that defies the openness that we imagine ourselves to be. I, uh, another personal, my, um, my wife at home uh, was, I came in the house and she was ru- listening to Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> I don't know who listens to this tape, but (laughs) Rush Limbaugh is not my political persuasion. 
And, and so I come in the house and I think, I say to her, why are you listening to that stuff? And she says, oh, I want to understand his opinion. Now, who's the Dharma teacher in that moment? <laughs> Sometimes it's worthwhile just exposing ourselves to the other opinion. I mean, if we're Democratic, the Republican opinion. Not that we're going to be converted Republican. We don't have to hold on entrenched with our entrenched beliefs, you know, afraid that somebody's going to convert us. Well, that's not openness. Openness isn't fear-based. It's clarity and compassion-based. So we let in what's in. Yeah. And then if it doesn't stick, it doesn't stick. It's not our particular way. It's not how we see the world. We let it go. So now I would like to switch the discussion because there are three postures that I see that really represent uh, our degree of openness. And each of these postures we think are open, but I think they hold and harbor a particular kind of prejudice within them. And I just would like to expose and explore those postures. Now, as I say them, um, you will probably see yourself very firmly and emphatically within one. But most of us are in all three at some point. So listen, don't dismiss the ones that you don't feel like you're a part of. So the first posture, and the postures have a physical component to them. I mean, it's almost like you can see the physical posture, you can see the psychic posture within the physical one. The first one is the, uh, the, the posture of leaning into, leaning into an event. Uh, And uh, for those people who uh, think that they're beyond that one, it's the uh, can't wait till the meditation is over. It's that pushing ahead. It's that uh, biting the bit of time, looking for the future, next future moment to arrive. That expectation, that planning mentality, constantly leaning in. It's the one that can't really settle with the here and now because the here and now isn't what's important. It's where the here and now is going to go that's important. And so there's, there's a kind of a lack of just being in place and in this time. It's full of control and influence and speed and anxiety. It's um, well represented uh, within this culture, uh, This is a time essay that's called Healthy, Wealthy, and Unhappy. And I'll just read this real quick. Some years ago, the story goes, a large corporation gave African peasants fertilizers so that their crops would double. And indeed it did. The businessmen thought that they had sown the seeds of efficient agriculture. Alas, when the next season came, the peasants didn't plant anything. Why didn't you plant, the businessmen asked. The peasants thought the question somewhat silly. Our last harvest was double, they replied. We have enough to feed our families till next year. (laughs) On a holiday in a fishing village in Mexico, an American businessman watches a local fisherman haul in a rather small catch. Why don't you stay out to sea longer and bring in more fish, the visitor inquires. I like to spend time playing with my children 
taking a siesta with my wife and playing guitars, uh, the guitar with my friends, the Mexican answers. The American is unimpressed. <laughs> if you worked harder, you could buy a second fishing boat, then a whole fleet. You could head up a large corporation, move to New York City, and have it on Wall Street. <laughs> Eventually, you could sell your stock and become very rich. And then, senor, the fisherman asks, well, then comes the best part, the fisherman says. You could retire, move to the Mexican fishing village, take a siesta with your wife, and play with your kids. <laughs> Isn't that obvious? <laughs> That's the leaning forward. That's the, the biting the, the bit. It welcomes change, but only as an opportunity to move out of the discomfort of the here and now. Let the thing go. Let the, let the pain evolve somewhere else. And you can see and feel that posture almost as a leaning into posture. You're in the grocery line, and you look and you say, God, why didn't I get in that grocery line? And it's that... <laughs> right? You're brushing your teeth, as Narayan had mentioned, and you're thinking about the day's activities that happen next. And then you're at the next activity and you're thinking about the next one, and then the next one, and the next one. In Seattle, we're filled with the dot comers of life, the, the tech crowd, and they're full of this kind of energy of the next the next cash to riches scenario I was actually reading something and they're finding that this is the this is the same mentality they're finding that there's a in television programming that there's a slight gap or space between television commercials when they come on and when they end and the program itself, a little, and they find, found that there was a lot of anxiety that was aroused because of this little space in time. <laughs> so they're doing their best to eliminate that. <laughs> so that we, we won't get too anxious in that quiet. <laughs> I'm making fun, but please see it in us all. It's, it's very much of a, of a cultural and oftentimes we don't see it because uh, we're, you know, it's the fish swimming in the water trying to see the water. It's, it's so much a part of how we are that we don't, you know, self-improvement and productivity and ambition and striving in the next moment. It's just so enmeshed in ourselves. We don't really get a sense of it. And it's very, very important to get a sense of that. Often going to other cultures gives us that, that sense. So that's the first uh, and just a metaphrase, um, uh, one of the traditional metaphrases is, may all beings have ease of well-being. Ease of well-being. You see how that, all, uh, ease of well-being. How that really uh, invites a, uh, an opposite from that leaning forward mentality. So that's the leaning forward. The other posture the, the second posture is the backward stance. It's the one that says, um, you have difficult getting going in the morning. Oh, I, I just let me lie here in bed. It's the one that relishes the present experience and holds on to it to such a degree that it, it doesn't, we don't want to give it up. 
we really just bathe ourselves uh, as things are and um, and just hold on and there's a, there's a lot of fear in this particular posture. To, to move out and to move forward is, uh, feels risky. It feels uncertain. It feels like I'm out of control. What I have here is controllable. But for me to move out of that is, is, uh, is frightening. And so, and so in this posture, there can be a lot of fear. And people are usually um, uh, uh, rather um, exaggerated collectors. They don't just collect, they, they compile. I walked in a hospice home one time, and this is actually a syndrome, where um, there were literally tunnels through the house, and all uh, on the edges of the paths were piled newspapers. Nothing had ever been thrown away for the life of this entire family. It was just full with junk. And you, you, just, you went through this little you know, <laughs> maze I mean, that's an extreme example, but um, it often is in us in some way. This kind of backward leaner, just don't, don't, not anything new. Wanting my old meditation back. This one's never good enough. It's that one in the morning. <laughs> you know. Uh, there's a, often a lot of guilt and shame in this posture. And we're held to kind of a remorse. It's an identification. It can often be a very strong sense of a, of a coalescing around a particular uh, past uh, relationship with ourselves, like shame. Shame is a, is a, is a feeling of, of uh, blame, of self-blame, an ongoing feeling of self-blame uh, that just holds us, you know, the reins of time are pulling us back. And we're constantly... Uh, uh, Everything, perspective of everything is what we have done, you know, and who we are now is what we have done in the past. The feeling for that? Now the third stance. So there's a leaning forward, leaning backward, and then there's the upright stance. This is a very different way to hold ourselves. Very different sense of freedom. As the pendulum swings from one to the other, it often momentary. As we go worrying about what the future is and regretting the past, there's this moment where the pendulum actually swings through the neutral, the plumb line. And there may be a, an actual moment of release, but we don't probably even recognize it as such. It's that sense of connecting with things. How do we? think we're going to connect with things. Leaning forward to it? Leaning backward? Where do we think the word connection comes from? Let me read a short paragraph on connecting. I'm a country girl, only this time in a middle-aged disabled body. At ten, I would have raced these hills on my bicycle, but now I poke along. I once walked the six miles from my house to Kent Lake in less than four hours. But that wasn't my best time. My personal best is eight hours and 15 minutes. That includes resting with the lizards sunning on a rock, frequently removing my shoes and wading in a stream, writing down a dream remembered staring at Mount Bonarby, listening to a woodpecker in the same tree that harbors an osprey nest, nest playing with the shadow stilts the fading sun of the evening gives my downhill legs, 
and, le- and at least, oh yes, at least one hour of listening to the silence of the pines. See, when we lean forward or lean back, what is leaning is that sense of self-leaning. I've got something to do in this moment, so don't bother me with it. I've got something to do that I have to work out in the past, so don't bother me with what's going on. The moment, that moment is an impoverished moment between a forbidding and desperate past and a longing and intense future. And there's this little sliver in there somewhere where the pendulum might pass through called the present moment. Now let's explore uh, for the remaining of the time, if we could, um, just a few reasons why it's so difficult to take this upright posture. And may I say, one of the reasons that we emphasize posture in meditation is because if you actually take an upright posture, it is the best environment. It actually affects the mind's ability to be in that posture of receptivity. If the shoulders are open, the back is straight, it is the posture represent or mirrors the optimum environment for that receptivity to be there. I mean, what is this posture? So really work on physical posture as a representation or as a stance for receptivity and openness. So one of the reasons that it's so difficult um, to be in that upright posture, and perhaps the most important reason, is that it requires a release from time. Uh, Many of us have had difficult childhoods. And uh, the memories are so stark and can be so forbidding and so fearful that uh, to take an upright posture, uh, we would have to open up to the pain of that past because upright postures has no protection to it. When I'm yearning for the future, then I'm, I'm... often motivated by some emotion in the present that's driving me outward. Loneliness, example, or unworthiness. If I'm holding on to the past, then at least I have some identification so that I can be identified and work this thing out. So my whole life is around working it out. But when I'm upright, I have no relationship to time whatsoever. I'm just available. And although the past and present come in, they come in like a a breeze through the window. Does nothing. Says nothing about anyone. Points nowhere. And there's absolutely nothing to work out. And I don't want it in any way a slight people who need to work through some of the tragic childhood experiences that 
they've had through the abuse and that sort of thing. Because, because to take that posture, again, you have to feel the fear. This is a, and, and that's uh, can be too overpowering. So to work with a therapist and, uh, and, and a gradual way of, of, of gaining a foothold with fear is very useful. So I'm not in any way negating that process. But at some point, we're ready to stand up. And we may stay longer in the field of time than is necessary because we've now identified with that very field as being who I am. I'm the sufferer. I'm the abused. I'm the disappointed. I'm the lonely person. And, and our identity is so much caught in the past or the planner, or well, professional planner, you need some planning? <laughs> that um, I, I, I'm reluctant to give up that identity. And to, and to stand upright, I have no identity. That's the, you see, that's the, when you're upright, the time, I don't know. And maybe our meditation has allowed brief moments into that uprightness where we don't really have a fix on things. Where there's, it's just, we can't reach out and claim anything in that moment. We can't, there's no positionality. And what usually happens is that when the meditation is over, we rush off and get some tea. <laughs> <laughs> or run to the a food bowl where we've kept a snack or a treat or half a cookie. Get us back into the body. Get us back into what we know to be, you know, desire. Let it bite again. Let it, let it, let it, let it take hold again. Oh, now I know who I am. I'm back. Okay. Boy. <laughs> let me uh, read a Mary Oliver uh, she was an, I believe she was an abused uh, woman. At least she had palms around that effect. This was called Grass. It says, Those who disappointed, betrayed, scarified, those who would still put their hands upon me, those who belong to the past, how many of us have weighed the years with groaning and weeping? How many years have I done it? How many nights been panting, hating, grieving, oh, merciless, pitiless remembrances? I walk over the green hillsides, I lie down on the harsh, sun-flavored blades and bundles of grass. The grass cares nothing about me. It doesn't want anything from me. It rises to its own purpose and sweetly follows its only single dictum, to be itself, to let the sky be the sky, to let a young girl be a young girl freely, to let a middle-aged woman be comfortably a middle-aged woman. Those bloody sharps and flats, those endless calamities of the personal past, bah, I disown them all for the rest of, the li- of my life, which I now plan to rest. The second reason that many of us find an upright posture difficult is that um, we are riddled with unworthiness. And it feels like we don't deserve this because we're receiving. The word, what does the word receiving mean to you? When you just say to yourself, uh, what receiving? Let me receive. Are you 
comfortable with that word? For instance, uh, if you've been a giver or a doer or a helper your whole life, in hospice care we often see mothers, mothers are in particular in this category, they've raised a, a family, now they're now dying, and their caregivers are often their sons and daughters. And they have many mothers, not all, but many mothers have very, very difficult time allowing that role reversal. They feel like they should get up and help their sons and daughters when they're the ones that are ill. And they can't allow that sense of receiving to come in. They can't be supported in their time of need because that is not a role that fits with a lifetime of, being, of having that responsibility. How are we comfortable just receiving? Are we worthy of receiving? When we give ourselves metta each day, how about that? How does that sit with us? We fight that? You see? That's all the upright stance. And the upright stance, we are equal. All beings are equal. And we are equally deserving of receiving. Some people say, well, this is a selfish practice. You're just getting off alone and being by yourself. And Is taking a shower selfish? Is eating a meal selfish? Too self-absorbed. I'm not deserving of this. I'm not deserving of this. I feel so unworthy inside. I can't, I can't receive. But the whole Dharma is about receiving. So we have to work with that, with that, that awkwardness, that, that restlessness of being on the receiving end, that kind of wiggling that goes on. Because, again, absolute equality, equality, The third reason that we don't feel um, we, we are no longer in, uh, the third reason that we have a difficult time with the receptive upright posture is that when we're upright, we no longer feel like we're in control of our experience. This is a another huge Western attitude. You know, when uh, when I'm in control, I have influence. And uh, the backward leaner tries to trace whatever problems it has back to its causation. The forward leaner attempts to attack it uh, or right it in some way. But the receptive person has no strategy whatsoever to handle problem except to be aware of it, to let it in, to understand it. No defense against it. Now, uh, as a way to point out that, <laughs> I have a an actual transcript of a radio conversation between a U.S. naval ship with Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. <laughs> Americans, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Canadians, recommend that you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. <laughs> Americans, now we're, up, we're going up a little. You're not going to tell me what to do. This is the captain of the U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, no. <laughs> I say again, 
I say again, you divert your course. Americans. This is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. <laughs> I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's 15 degrees north. Or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians. This is a lighthouse. Your call. (laughs) 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 That need to control, that need to influence, that need to exert our power, that need to exert our will. When we get angry... You see, that forward leaning, that power exertion, that you're on top of the world. You are the king of the hill with that self-righteous anger. Why be receptive to it? I have to give up my, uh, my, my hill. I have to give up my position. I have to give up, my, I have to give up my, uh, my empowerment. And anger feeds on that sense of empowerment. And the meditator drops that. Drops it. And just deals with the anger. And it goes. It hurt. The whole time I was on that hill, it was burning me. It hurt. There's a fire under me. But it didn't matter because the empowerment of the anger was so... I'll hurt anyway. I don't care. Just give me that. But the meditator drops it. Just drops it. The fourth reason is that it means when we're in an upright posture that we will change. We will become something different than what we are. It's guaranteed. It has to happen. When we are open and really receptive to things, listening, allowing, our orientation is allowing, receptive, open, Things are passing through us. And when they pass through us, they influence us. We learn about them. When we learn about something, the definition of learning is change. I'm not talking about academic learning. And when we change, we change. And we don't know where we're changing. We don't know how we're not in control any longer of our change. That is death. You want to know what it's like to die? Open yourself to change. Yet it is this meditative stance, this open, receptive stance, this straight, shoulder back stance of receptivity that is the whole of the meditation. How else is discovery possible? How else is learning possible? When we're holding on to the expectation of what the next moment will bring, we're not learning. We don't even much care about learning. We're just kind of running through this moment to get to the next. No learning is really possible. When we're back, we're resistant to learning. We want to hold on to what we've already got. And learning means we have to give that up and become something new. 
So receptivity is a death. It's a kind of death. And it scares us, as death does. So all day long, we just like this. Oh, <laughs> Waving back and forth. Whirling, backward, whirling, backward. Here's someone sitting upright. When we honestly ask ourselves which persons in our lives mean the most to us, we often find it is those who, instead of giving much advice, solution, or cures, have chosen rather to share our pain and touch our wounds with a gentle and tender hand. The friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in the hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face with us the reality of our own powerlessness. That is the friend who cares. Those of you who have been by the bedside of the dying, there's absolutely nothing you can do. Your heart wants to do something. It's not that there's not caring. There's enormous caring in that posture. But there's nothing anyone can do. And in that complete powerlessness, we have two options. To flee or to, be, or to receive the moment. Just to receive it. And we receive death with it. And the pain that's associated with that moment right there. So the heart is open. There is just presence. Just presence. It's that simple moment that all this is about. And all the fear and everything. That's what we're working with. We're working with what keeps us in an up from an upright posture. What keeps us wiggling and squirming? What keeps us from feeling the air coming in the window? The touch of the breeze. For in the end, it is that safe. It is as safe as the sun on your shoulder blades. Why all the wiggling? Let us just take the posture and let everything else be. Can we sit for a minute or two? a screen with a wind blowing. Nothing belongs to us. Everything is on the way to something else. <laughs> 